you know, I saw plane crashes, we saw hydro explosions, like uh, somebody had hit a gas line and, and there was an explosion of that line. You literally could, anything you can possibly think of, you, you could end up seeing. That's Melanie Couture, a medical laboratory technologist from Manitoba. Melanie is describing some of the on-call events she experienced while working in a rural hospital setting. Sounds stressful, doesn't it? I'm stressed just thinking about the idea of being woken up from a deep sleep and having to rush into an emergency situation. Ironically, every year, job search site CareerCast released a list of the most and least stressful jobs. Number six on the least stressful list, medical laboratory professionals. Slightly more stressful than a hairstylist, they were number four, and quite a bit more carefree than the librarian. They took the 10th spot. We've actually held this spot for the last two years. A couple of quick caveats. This study is American, and it uses the term technician. It's common to see the terms technician and technologist used interchangeably in the media, so it's not immediately clear if they truly meant lab technicians or lab technologists. Regardless, and with all due respect to the folks at CareerCast, I'm not sure they fully appreciate life in the medical laboratory. They certainly haven't talked with Melanie. You're listening to The Objective Lens. In this episode, we're looking at issues surrounding workplace stress. In March 2016, the CSMLS ran a focus group looking at the issue of workplace stress within our profession. 38% of participants reported experiencing a high level of stress on a daily basis. 76% felt burnt out at least weekly, if not daily, because of work stress. Those numbers are high, real high. So I think stress in our profession is something we need to talk about and understand more. The fact is that um, a certain amount of stress is not only uh, normal and appropriate, it's necessary. That's Dr. David Posen, an Oakville, Ontario family physician who specializes in stress management. His book titled, Is Work Killing You? A Doctor's Prescription for Treating Workplace Stress, takes a hard look at the excessive stress prevalent in Canada's workplaces. We usually associate stress with negative connotation, but not all stress is bad. The stress reaction is really part of our survival uh, equipment to to deal with uh, the adversities of life and so on. So a certain amount of stress is necessary, but it's also beneficial because it gives us energy to do our jobs well, to be focused, uh, motivates and stimulates us, and so on. This good type of stress is called eustress. The term was coined by Dr. Hans Selye, a Vienna-born doctor who came to Canada to carry out research at McGill University in 1932. Dr. Selye is considered the father of the field of stress research and he was inducted into the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame in 2006. Eustress occurs when we are pushed, but not overwhelmed. Our goal is not too far to reach, but it's not attainable either. So eustress can foster a sense of challenge and motivation, which can increase an individual's performance. It's still taxing on the body, but it usually has a desirable outcome. But a certain amount of stress is great, uh, even when people are excited about something, that's a form of stress, but it's very pleasant and enjoyable. Um, athletes before a competition and so on, you, you want them keyed up. You want them 
uh, anxious and, and experiencing some stress because that's going to give them extra energy and focus to do their best and, and so on. So certain amount of stress, great. The problem in today's society, most people have more than they uh, would like and uh, more than is helpful. Melanie Couture is a pretty straightforward person. Ask her a direct question, you'll get a direct answer. She recently made a career change, moving to an urban hospital lab from a more rural site. Having worked in both urban and rural environments, Melanie can attest to the various stressors in both settings. Some of the situations Melanie shared with us did trigger this good type of stress. When it was a real emergency, like a heart attack, a a bizarre thing such as a, you know, crop duster crashing, like you knew you were there for a reason. And so it was um, probably like a different kind of stress. It was that uh, adrenaline inducing kind of stress because you knew you had to be there and you had to help and this person really desperately needed you and the nurses and the doctors. While stress can be an adrenaline pumping experience that helps you rise to a challenge, that isn't the only type of stress Melanie experienced. I mentioned Melanie recently moved to a larger urban hospital. The stress she describes when talking about this role often centers on the volume of the work and the pressure to maintain turnaround times. However, when thinking back on her experiences in the small rural hospital, the drivers of stress were quite distinct. But for me, the stress never went away for the actual phone call to come in. Um, I I always found that phone call stressful waiting, just that waiting around for it. Um, And then when, when you get called in the night and you're woken up, that stress never left. That that being woken up in the middle of the night and having to very quickly um, become awake and, and then go and help someone. I I found that that being woken up part very stressful and it never left me. The on-call aspect of working in a smaller laboratory definitely seemed to add a layer of stress to the role. But Melanie also talked about the effects of having a closer relationship with the patients she was there to serve. I mean, you're seeing, you're seeing the patient and how it's affecting them. You're seeing the families and how it's affecting them. You're seeing the nurses and the doctors and how well they work together and how, how it affects them. You're just seeing it on, on different levels. So your, your driver in the rural area is, is for me, was I, I don't want to see these people in pain. I don't want to see these people um, in shock or crying. And so I want to do everything I can to either alleviate their situation which is usually by me getting the samples analyzed as quickly as possible as I can for the, for the doctors, or it is taking that step and asking the family if they need something to drink, if they need a quiet place to sit. It's much more real and in your face you see who it's affecting. I asked Melanie which environment was more stressful. I expected that she would answer the rural lab as she walked away from that experience with some pretty crazy stories to tell. But she said that she thought the amount of stress she experienced is probably about the same. It's different, but it's still there. I'm sure if you're working in an urban setting, it's easy to think about the counterparts in rural hospitals and pine over those lower test volumes. And vice versa, you could look at the urban centers and long for the large supporting team that simply takes over your work at the end of the shift. At the end of the day, no matter what type of lab, in no matter what type of regional setting, stress is a significant part of your work life. 
So life in a medical lab is stressful. I asked Dr. Posen if he thought working in healthcare, and specifically in a lab, would be more stressful than the average work environment. We're talking about consequences here. Uh, we're talking about people's lives. We're talking about diagnoses, uh, which then have an impact on what treatments are going to be undertaken. Um, it might be surgery, and wouldn't it be terrible if unnecessary surgery was done based on certain lab results? Um, it can be uh, what drugs are going to be used to treat a patient, and some of those are, you know, can be toxic and so on. Um, and even lives can be at stake. So the, uh, the stakes are high. Uh, I think if I were working in a lab, I wouldn't be thinking at every moment that you know, somebody's life might be on the line. But when you think about it, what we do in hospitals and in the healthcare system uh, has a profound uh, impact in terms of safety and per in terms of, of people's uh, uh, you know, health and maybe suffering and so on. So, so the stakes are higher than in some other aspects of, uh, of, of other workplaces. So if we acknowledge the fact that lab professionals are going to encounter stress, that it's an unavoidable part of the job, then we need to start looking at how to manage that stress. So what can you do to manage your own stress levels? Dr. Posen offers some advice. There are three things that for sure uh, are, are as, a, as basic as it gets, but really have an impact. And the first one is sleep. Uh, we're a sleep-deprived society to the tune of about 60 to 90 minutes a night. And it's costing people. They're tired. They're not concentrating as well. It affects their short-term memory. Uh, it affects their mood. They become a little more irritable, a little, uh, a little more uh, easily frustrated, perhaps. And and it can show up as depression. Um, it affects your immune system and so on. But but in terms of stress, what's really interesting, most of the symptoms of sleep deprivation are in themselves symptoms of stress. Sleep deprivation actually raises cortisol levels, and cortisol is the main hormone in chronic stress. So one of the most important things, and I deal with all of these things with my patients, but my patients have to get the sleep that they need. And for most people, that's about eight hours a night. And for some people, it's difficult to get that amount of sleep for a variety of reasons, but I work with patients a lot around that. The second one is exercise. Um, we are a sedentary society, and of course, people working in labs, it's hard to move around very much, and, and they're sitting at, at, uh, at their benches and computers and so on for long periods of time, and, um, and, and that's just not healthy for people. And one of the best stress relievers is actually exercise. It helps to drain off stress energy, because the stress reaction is really the fight-or-flight response. It gives us quick energy to fight or run away from danger. That's the stress reaction. However, in most cases, uh, that builds up, and uh, we need places to release it, and exercise is a wonderful way to do that. And it can be anything from working out at a gym or going for a, you know, a, a bike ride to just simply going for a walk at lunch hour. But physical activity is really important. Um, the third thing, uh, well, the third basic thing is nutrition, and I won't go into that so much now. We just need to eat healthy. We need the fruits and vegetables and so on and less sugars and fats. Diet, sleep, and exercise. It's funny. When we think of the stress in our lives, the sources seem very much out of our control. Yet the most effective tools for managing that stress are completely in our control. That doesn't make them easy by any stretch, but it does mean that a good part of our stress management is in our own hands. Dr. Posen has another important tip. 
the interesting thing about caffeine is that it's social, so, so socially acceptable, we forget that it's a drug. And it's actually a strong stimulant. It stimulates the release of adrenaline. It stimulates the release of cortisol. It blocks a natural relaxant in the brain called adenosine. And the net result is it jazzes up your body and creates a stress reaction. I call coffee stress in a cup. You're literally drinking stress. Think about that for a minute. Life without coffee. I'm not sure there could be anything worse for me to have to give up. Coffee is only one of the substances that has caffeine because it includes tea, cola drinks, chocolate, and energy drinks like Red Bull and Rockstar and Jolt and Monster and so on. So uh, I get all my patients to go off caffeine for three weeks to see what the effect is on them. And uh, I would say 75 to 80% of my patients feel better without it. They feel more calm. They feel more relaxed. They sleep better because caffeine actually fragments your sleep cycle, and they actually uh, have better energy, which is a real paradox, because you take away a stimulant, you think you have less energy. But uh, over time, chronic use of caffeine actually uh, reduces people's energy. Three weeks without chocolate? Okay, this will be hard. And don't forget that if you do try to eliminate caffeine from your diet, make sure you do it gradually, otherwise you're in for one heck of a headache. Managing your own stress is one thing, an important thing. But the management of workplace stress needs to be a shared responsibility. Dr. Posen emphasizes the need to have more accountability on the employer side of this equation. Employers... Uh, have gotten a free pass for a very long time on this. A lot of employees, I would say probably most employers, say things like stress reduction and work-life balance, that's the responsibility of the employee. That's for you to figure out and for you to implement and so on. Meanwhile, the employer is just piling the work on, and even if people are really good at, at dealing with stress and dissipating stress, some of them can't keep up because the load is being put on them uh, by the employer uh, faster than they can deal with it and dissipate the stress. So I think employers have to start looking at what they're doing to generate stress in the first place. There are a number of strategies that Dr. Posen recommends when he speaks with employers about addressing workplace stress. These strategies address what Dr. Posen calls the big three drivers of stress, volume, velocity, and abuse. Volume, as you can probably guess, refers to the ever-increasing amount of work being demanded of employees. This is evident in the all-too-common phrase, doing more with less. The velocity of work refers to the increasing pace of the workplace, where increased expectations and unrealistic deadlines have become the rule rather than the exception. And abuse is a term that Dr. Posen associates with interpersonal conflict and tension. Dr. Posen says that managers have to acknowledge the problem and then intervene. If everything is hurry, hurry, rush, rush all the time, then something is wrong and it needs to be looked at from a systemic level. He also says managers need to be role models and really set the tone. When, when people who are uh, in, in management roles actually give people permission to take their breaks, make sure they're taking their vacations, not staying too late at work. I've had patients tell me you know, where their boss said, you know, I want you to start leaving earlier. I want you to start leaving on time. I mean, 
that's, that's really powerful. When it comes to abuse in the workplace, Dr. Posen doesn't really mince words. Abuse in the workplace. I think a lot of this goes under the radar, and in many cases, it's really interesting because a lot of people know who the abusive people are in the workplace, but nobody's doing anything about them. And uh, my motto is find them and either fix them or fire them. You know, identify who the people are who are really creating a problem and put them on notice and say to them, this isn't acceptable. Uh, We'll put you on a probation period or whatever, and you've got to shape up your act. And if you don't, we're going to have to show you the door. And by the way, you can send these people for stress management, anger management, sensitivity training, and so on. I mean, you can work with these people, but you have to really have a zero tolerance. They talk about zero tolerance for abuse and harassment and bullying in the workplace, but there's still far too much of it. We'll delve further into the very real issue of workplace bullying and harassment in another episode. In the late 1960s, two psychiatrists, Richard Rahe and Thomas Holmes, set out to determine how stressful life changes affected health. They did this by examining more than 5,000 patient records to see if they could correlate stressful life events with illness. The result was a social readjustment rating scale, also known as the Holmes-Rahe Stress Inventory. It measures the amount of change in one's life that may affect stress levels and actually assigns a numerical value to each stressful event based on its effect on health. Number 15 from the top of that list is a major work readjustment. For context, that means it's roughly equivalent to the stress associated with the death of a close friend or a pregnancy. In fact, it's rated higher than the stress of having a mortgage foreclosure or conducting a major home reno. We cannot underestimate the amount of stress major changes at work can have on us. This was the reality that Life Labs had to recognize and address as they managed one of the largest laboratory mergers in history. In 2013, Life Labs required CML Healthcare for $1.2 billion, which made Life Labs the fourth largest testing company in the world. I think working at either company during this period of time would qualify as one of Holmes and Rahe's major work readjustments. Um, we did have two people from two different different organizations with different sets of SOPs and different sets of rules and regulations, and we had to kind of bring that all together and kind of come from one voice and one uh, mind. And so that was a challenge for us because there was uh, people that had... Um, uh, different opinions on how to do things, and you think that anatomic pathology, histology, cytology worlds would be very similar. Uh, as a matter of fact, sometimes in real practice, it's very different. So we had to kind of um, scrap everything that was out there, try and take the best of both, and, uh, and, and, and create a new vision of where we were going and try and listen to our, our team and, um, and make a new, happy, uh, unified effort going forward. That's Louis Litzes, Manager of Anatomic Pathology at Life Labs in Toronto. He talked to me about what it was like to manage the transition. When he speaks about the experience, you can tell there were some challenging times. But the other thing you can hear in his voice, unmistakably, is a sense of pride in what they accomplished and in the culture they've built along the way. For Louis, the key to everything was communication. We have daily huddles of a tier one huddle with the uh, supervisor and staff at the beginning of each shift. And then we have a tier two huddle 
uh, with the supervisor and the manager daily to get a, a concept of where we're going in the right directions. And then there's a tier three huddle with the manager and director. So um, we're, we're well aligned with that group, and uh, it's through a lot of communication. And I think that is the only way we were able to um, succeed so quickly was by airing out. Um, sometimes there's problems, and you need to surface those problems. And um, our team uh, at Life Labs, uh, one of their um, mantras coming out of that group, the Center of Excellence group, is uh, or was that um, you know your problems are your gems, and so we wanted to capture each one of these gems, and we capture them on a, a CI or a continuous improvement uh, huddle board in the morning there, and there's a little uh, sheet there where the staff can fill out the problem or the concern or question, and uh, then we proceed to work on it. It's one thing to say that you value communication; it's another to institutionalize it into your processes. And that is exactly what Lewis has done here with these huddles. I'll let him describe them to you in a little more detail. So in the Tier 1 huddle board at the beginning of each shift, um, there's an agenda to each morning's meeting. And uh, it kind of with the general announcements, you know, uh, life labs wide. So um, if there's any been major announcements, or if there's any constructions, or if there's any uh, closures or any new things that are happening in the lab that day, that's initially uh, put out there. For instance, today we're having our barbecue, our annual barbecue. So <laughs> at the beginning of the huddle, we've let staff all know about the barbecue that's going to be happening today. Um, and then after that, it's more specific into the area there. Is there any concerns with any instruments? Is there any safety concerns? Our, uh, we have a motto of SPQDC, so we have uh, safety, people, quality, delivery, and cost. And uh, within that SPQDC format, uh, we basically run our huddle. And that Tier 1 huddles also used for continuous improvements. We, we don't do it every day. We did at the beginning, and now we kind of save our continuous improvement days for Tuesday and Thursday. Because um, sometimes, you know, uh, you kind of get in the lull of this, and every day for someone to come up with an idea is a little bit of pressure. So we kind of say, okay, let's, um, let, let's relax and do it, you know, on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We'll talk about it. So um, we have people giving up suggestions on how to make uh, an area of improvement, or there's a concern that they had. And then um, this, this concern is then written on a ticket, basically, and the ticket has the name of the person, what is the issue, how does it affect the, uh, the lab in an SPQDC kind of format. So is it a safety issue? Is it a people thing? Is it delivery? And that's circled. And then it's tabled to the group for discussions. So the whole team is involved in these huddles. This isn't a one-way, top-down communication. The whole team is responsible for identifying issues and then taking it to the next level and finding solutions. There's this thing called a, a, a pick chart, where if it's a high-impact, low-effort, or if it's a high-impact, high-effort, or if it's a low-impact, low-effort, or if it's a low-impact, high-effort, that gets categorized by the group. And if it's a high-impact event, but it's low effort, we try to do those as quickly as possible. If it's a high-impact, but it has a high effort, then we have to get the right people involved. Sometimes uh, it escalates to myself or my director, and it's something um, that is departmental-wide, so they may need to move a sink somewhere, and I need to get the construction team involved and allocate some resources to that. And then we'll move the sink and get that all taken care of. Or um, even higher effort is something for the organization is, you know, uh, all staff want, you know, more parking spots. You know, we don't have enough parking spots here. So I internalize that. I bring it to my director. He brings it to, you know, the VPs, and they talk about that and say, well, at, unfortunately at the moment this is all the space we have and our facility teams work out at. So 
we try not to leave anything as big or as small unresolved. So if the folks and staff are concerned about it, we want to hear about it. And I think that's the best part is um, this is our venue now and a venting system for everyone to really, um, you know, it, it, they're very positive. You may think that this is just only a, a complaining session or a concern session, but with time it kind of evolves and develops into uh, the little things that are brought up in a daily, uh, in this type of venue is astonishing to me. Um, it really shows that they care and they care about each other and they care about the environment around them. And even if it's a few things like, we need some racks over here so these tubes are better labeled and organized because I come in and they're in a basket every morning and they're just kind of loose everywhere and I have to dig through them. Why don't we put them on a nice rack, label them properly and go from there. Next thing you do, next thing you know, by next week, that is up, we're done. That's made their life easier. You can see that they're happier, they're smiling, and we're on to our next improvement. On to our next improvement. That's the thing. This is a never-ending cycle, and that's what makes this work. Notice that Lewis mentions his boss and his boss's boss. The whole organization has to commit to this in order to be successful. It becomes cultural. Stress management likely wasn't the impetus to bring in these communication tools. But Lewis and the team at Life Labs knew that the significant change ahead of them was a potentially perilous road. And they put systems in place to mitigate that, which in turn helps manage the stress of the team as they navigate the change. A couple years later, Lewis looks back with a sense of accomplishment. But what it really is now is that I've seen the shift of the our group versus your group versus, you know, we're, we're now this new group as to, hey, we're all working together. We're in the same place, you know, we're, we're, we're taking care of patients daily. Um, how's the best way we can do this, you know, and, and what's going to be safe for us? And how is this going to impact, you know, my work today? And so I think that's the perspective that we've been able to uh, shift mm-hmm. into this. And now when they look at it through those eyes, it's kind of in line with what the supervisors and seniors and manager and director in our organization is doing. So it allows communication to go further and to not allow it to be misconstrued, I think. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things when you have a big group of over 150 people. Um, Rumors get started and they get started um, quickly and they can go from anywhere from being a minor thing to a major thing. And uh, I think we need to mitigate those as quickly as possible and that's probably uh, been another success point with us is constant engagement with the staff. We've accepted stress, the bad kind, not the good kind, as a normal part of our work life. But just because it's prevalent doesn't make it normal. It certainly doesn't make it healthy. I asked Dr. Posen if there's a light at the end of the tunnel, if we've turned the corner and are making workplace stress more manageable. I think it's still early days. I don't think we're doing nearly enough. The fact that it's now being talked about is encouraging because I think the, the, the first issue really is awareness and then willingness to talk about this openly. Um, so we're talking a lot about mental health issues, but I'm not sure that in a lot of workplaces they're still tying it into the culture of the workplace and what the workplace itself might be doing to uh, you know, impact people's mental health. I agree. And I hope this episode starts some conversations. Let's keep talking. The Objective Lens is written and produced by Michael Grant and myself, Kathy Bowers, and is the official podcast of the Canadian Society for Medical Laboratory Science. Editing and technical assistance by Joel Tresini. Administrative support by Ridmilla Minor. 
For other episodes, supplemental content, and bonus material, visit our website at podcast.csmls.org. If you're in the medical laboratory field, you will want to go to the website to find a link to a short quiz. By completing the quiz, you will earn a certificate verifying professional development hours for listening to this episode. We'd love to hear from you. Come chat with us on Twitter at CSMLS or on Facebook. You can find us at facebook.com slash CSMLS.